Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look at our favorite properties. Today, we're talking about one of the most endearing sci-fi series of our time, Star Trek. A franchise has produced nine different TV series with a 10th in development and 13 movies over 55 years. So naturally, you're going to have a few flops along with your successes. So today we ask, what makes one series great and others as bad as a Romulan ale hangover? And before we start this five-year mission, we'd like to thank you for continuing to support our homegrown operation. As always, we are Joe and Mark, two dudes who love discussing pop culture with you and hopefully bringing you perspectives you wouldn't have found without either a ton of reading or watching a lot of television. What we still need is your support to like, comment, subscribe, and review our show. We can now be found where you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can find us by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. And if you're not following podcast websites, you can also find us on YouTube as well as Facebook and Twitter, where we share more pop culture news. So feel free to join the conversation. So today, I think we're probably covering kind of the biggest franchise we have so far. Like this is easily, um, yeah, easily dwarfing the other ones. Again, like it, like Star Trek has just been around um, well before we were born. <laughs> um, I think exactly yeah. like twenty years before we both hit the planet, uh, Star Trek had debuted in 1966. So it's been around for a while. Yeah, I remember my dad telling me about how, you know, the uh, <laughs> the he, he actually used to remember Star Trek because of the Packers winning the first Super Bowl. And they, <laughs> you know, ironically mm-hmm. kind of happened right around the same time. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but, you know, one of the interesting things I always thought about Star Trek was that I always felt like the fans of the show were a lot more intense than other properties that I came across when I was growing up, you know, mm-hmm. nowadays pop culture is so widely dispersed and it's oh, yeah. easy to consume and mm-hmm. you know there's there's so much for everybody now right i mean there's a whole lot of different audiences that that pop culture touches nowadays oh you're you're completely right on that one i mean some of our first like conventions and everything happened because of star trek fans um wanting to dress up and meet with other star trek people i'm not going to say it was the first convention but like when, when conventions really started getting big, like Star Trek had its hand in that. And like when you say um, the fans are an intense part of it, I'm, I'm definitely one of them. Um, you have to look at like this is a series that was saved at least twice because of fans um, writing in or fans demanding that the show not be canceled, as well as um, looking at how like the fans took their love of the series and use that to influence other real world events that went on. Uh, so it was a cultural phenomenon um, that was really, really driven by the fan base. So I know I've been like, I've been big on Star Trek since literally always um, that I can think of. Um, I remember watching, starting with the next generation, because obviously that was the one that was around when we were actually alive. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I started with that because my brother really liked it. And so like most things that, you know, I'm the little brother. So if he likes something, there's a good chance I really like it because he likes it. But um, that's how it definitely started for me. But that's not the end all be all of, of how much um, I've just really fallen for Star Trek over the years and how much I got into it. So I remember watching through the next generation um, all the way till its end and really remember like my family like recording the last episode as it aired on TV, which is, I don't know, probably illegal, but um, <laughs> going back and watching that a few times because of how much um, we just loved how it wrapped up the series and how it took the literal best of everything that we thought Star Trek stood for and uh, brought it into this last two-part episode. Um, I know you'd mentioned like you would, you'd watch a little bit with your dad. So is that where, is that where Star Trek started with you? Yeah, I mean, Star Trek actually started at just about the same point um, with my brothers and I watching it in the early 90s, and we watched The Next Generation. Now, I'll, actually, I'll absolutely preface my my Star Trek experience with uh, it being, if we had to compare it to, let's say, like a college education. Mm-hmm. Joe's got a, a, his bachelor's <laughs> and a master's degree. Uh, he's probably even got a minor somewhere in Star Trek, whereas... Um, I only went for a two-year degree and I didn't complete it. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, my cred is, is not nearly as much uh, with the Star Trek universe, but you're, you're totally right though. My, my dad and I bonded over uh, a little bit of Star Trek, um, the original series, because there was this point where my, I don't know if my dad was just kind of going through something and he mm-hmm. was, you know, living through the glory days, but he went back and watched Johnny quest at one point in time. And, uh, and then he also started watching the original Star Trek series again. Um, so, you know, me being a, a son interested in his, his parents' endeavors, I kind of sat there and watched some of it with him. And um, so, yeah, that's how I got some of the season one and part of season two of the original series um, exposure. But, yeah, it was uh, Star Trek was one of those things that I always knew about. Mm-hmm. I was always kind of aware of, you know, what property was kind of going on at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I would say like the most recent movies are probably the things I actually have the most amount of screen time with because, you know, they're, they're all over the place. You can always watch them. So, yeah, but either way, I've always been, a, have always appreciated Star Trek, uh, for what it was. So Mm -hmm. no, no judgment for me (laughs) on on those who love this property. So, Mm -hmm. and so, and that's the thing, like when it comes to like the people who really love this property, they're so, so terribly divided in what they love about it in a lot of, in a lot of terms or basically not what they, not what they love about it, but which part of the property they love. Because um, over the years you have, like we've seen basically um, a new Trek comes out. It's almost like this weird phase where um, after the first series had come and gone, a new Trek would come out and there's kind of like this initial hatred for it. And then there's this really big build and loving it. And then right as you really love it, the show's done. And then it kind of cycles and does that each time we get a new series. Um, because I think one thing that Star Trek really, really did well for me growing up is how much I got attached to the characters and what they were doing. Um, so when those characters are no longer going to be a part of your life and Star Trek goes on, it's almost like most people aren't ready for that to happen. So we get upset about it. Um, so what we want to look at today is kind of like what makes Star Trek great? What makes people 
latch onto the property uh, so much so that they kind of almost, I don't want to say turn inward and, and have <laughs> hatred for the property itself, but <laughs> why it is that some properties really resonate with some, uh, as a, with some people over others? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things I was interested in here was, mm -hmm. I mean, and I, I hate to say this, but it was hopefully, you know, gaining some of your your knowledge on Star Trek, you know, mind meld style here. <laughs> and, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, we've been pretty good about digging into the the historical context behind the properties that we've mm -hmm. liked, you know. And so um, for those of you that, you know, don't have any kind of Star Trek exposure whatsoever, it all started with a guy named Gene Roddenberry. Um, who decided he wanted to create his own vision for the future. Um, and yeah, I guess, I guess I'm curious to, to know what, I guess to understand Joe, I mean, what, what you know about Roddenberry and, and where he came from. Yeah. Well, like, like you said, Roddenberry is, he is the start, uh, start of this whole thing. And um, I think it's because of what Roddenberry's vision of the future is. It's something that we all, hopefully could aspire towards and and really latch on to that made it so great and it was his basically really unrelenting um devotion to what that vision is is what made um the first two series uh of the of the of the franchise what they were uh even though um you find that roddenberry's actual involvement with the two series does wane after a while but before we get to that yeah. let's look at exactly what was around roddenberry um, mm -hmm. at that time. Um, Gene Roddenberry, um, I believe he was, he was a pilot at one point. Um, I believe he was, I think he was in World War II. With some, I think he was a World War II veteran, uh, or if not still um, attached to it. But the world around him currently is, the world is grasping the Cold War. There's this constant fear of the two really big superpowers kind of annihilating each other through nuclear ability. Um, you have the Vietnam War um, that's going on. Uh, you have the race uh, riots and the civil rights movements of the 60s that are, um, of course, humanity's fight to, to equality um, is boiling over. And uh, you have campus uh, protests everywhere. And Gene really saw the world almost as though we were coming apart out of our seams and we were kind of going after each other. And he wanted to find a world where people could negotiate these problems no matter what they were. And mm -hmm. that's yeah, where, which, which is a, that's a pretty endearing uh, aspect of all Star Trek is, you know, you, you see how people often solve mm -hmm. conflicts with their words and not, not just fighting. It's uh, it's, 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 it's very unique to Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, absolutely. And that's um, almost sadly, one of the things that kind of, uh, in my, my opinion, like actually turned people away from Star Trek is because it, um, especially um, in like really the original series through the next generation and its spinoffs. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on that philosophy and really other philosophies um, in general that are going on and not so much emphasis placed on the action and adventure of going through space. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think turns some people away, especially when they're younger. Um, they're hoping for pew pew space lasers, which is not like, <laughs> Not that's not something that's meant to like belittle any other sci-fi franchise, but yeah. I think that's what a lot of us are looking for when we look at uh, look at science fiction. I mean, you had that's what Buck Rogers was um, way back when it was action adventure just in this in space. Um, Star Wars it starts afterwards, which again 
fantastic, beautiful property, but there is a lot of lot of action and romance and a lot of these traditional things that we really grasp onto. And part of what made Star Trek, Star Wars great was that storytelling, was that action. And when that's not really there, it is harder for a lot of audiences to grasp onto. And that's not meant to like also like say that like Star Trek is supposed to be highbrow. It's certainly not highbrow. <laughs> I mean, especially yeah. when you look at like production of these shows, um, Star Wars, even like the producers and the actors have always said Star Trek was a low budget show <laughs> um, in both the original series and Next Generation. But let's get back to that really, again, that idea of uh, Roddenberry's philosophy of that yeah. um, basically you have uh, what he pitched uh, the original network NBC with on the show was a wagon train into space, um, <laughs> which also is weird because he was trying to appeal to the greater audience at the time in the 60s which were people who enjoyed westerns so yeah. oh yeah this, that's this uh, once, once again that, that's how my dad and i also bonded was yeah was watching all these mm -hmm. westerns and <laughs> and um just before we get too far away from it though mm -hmm. as you start talking about the philosophy of, of star trek and uh and basically how the the makeup of the crew and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that we'll get into here i i do want to say that um as a military brat I do know that Gene Roddenberry flew something like 90 combat missions in World War II. Mm -hmm. Oh, nice. So, Fantastic. So the, yeah. So like the philosophy and mm -hmm. his approach to things, maybe that could have a, a pretty big impact on, <laughs> on uh, how they start to build this world out. If you, if you get my drift, I mean, oh, completely. And actually it's because of his experience in World War II and um, crafts that he was, not necessarily, I don't think he was necessarily involved with, but he, he, he took from World War II and put them into Star Trek. Um, so when you took that, that philosophy of um, being able to talk through problems, that's how he got the idea for uh, Captain Pike on the USS Yorktown going through space, solving problems by negotiation, hmm. which of course is not Star Trek that we, as we know it. <laughs> um because even even by the time they hit the pilot they had to change things uh he got the name of the yorktown from an aircraft carrier from world war ii um that was oh cool yeah it was, it was part of his inspiration from it um what was that and then ultimately basically as he's throwing names around um there's no real big magical reason for the change other than he just kind of saw more the historic uh, significance of the name Enterprise and how it's been used on so many other ships uh, in the world's history that he just settled on mm -hmm. Enterprise as opposed to Yorktown. Um, and then you get the initial pilot uh, of the cage um, with Pike, Spock as the first mate. Um, and then uh, you have this issue of like the Enterprise being surrounded by these these other beings, and of course through the uh, through uh, what the show is meant to do, they they more or less negotiate their way out of it, and they they come to a resolution as opposed to fighting their way out, going in guns a blazing. Mm -hmm. um, and the network yeah. liked the idea, wasn't fond of of the captain, wasn't fond of Spock either. Uh, they thought that he, with his pointy ears and upwards eyebrows, was too satanic looking. Um, but Gene Roddenberry <laughs> fought tooth and nail to keep Spock in. And there was an original agreement with NBC that as long as he's a background character, it's okay. Um, which completely changes <laughs> as, as you see. Yeah. And something I, I did. So I knew this was going to happen when we started talking about this, mm -hmm. that like stuff was just going to shake loose 
because <laughs> I, I have I have ran into some of this stuff mm-hmm. before. <laughs> so sorry to lie to everybody just like five minutes ago. <laughs> but you're a bigger um, track fan than you realized. It's okay. Well, it's it's just coming back, man. We're we're opening up paths <laughs> that haven't been there in a while. But mm-hmm. uh, going to the the origins of of like the original series, though. Mm-hmm. Um, he, so he actually wrote a pilot called The Wild Blue. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. which which went to pilot but it didn't get picked up, and uh, and this would be like the like the, he had names in this this uh, pilot that actually would reappear. So as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know Pike, uh, Philip Pike was one of them. Uh, Edward Jellico was another. Jellico <laughs> would appear later. Uh, <laughs> next gen is a fun. Yep, good yep, reference. Mm-hmm. Yep, and next gen, and then uh, James T. Irvine was the other oh, the other yeah. name. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought that was cool that you mentioned the obviously the pilot here and the the early you know days of the show because i mean he was a writer pretty much ever since you know post uh, mm-hmm. his post service day so um yeah a lot of this stuff that he brought up in the original series had been on paper for a while um so it's kind of cool to see it all all come to life in one way or another yeah yeah it's great that, that basically he he makes star trek almost like his i don't want to say perfect amalgamation but like what he really wanted out of out of his life and his vision by taking things from other aspects of his life and putting them in, uh, into the series. Um, and speaking of that, like looking at, like, like you said, like the crew themselves, like that obviously changes after the pilot and we get James D Kirk in there, um, played by William Shatner, um, which we can have more fun talking of Shatner as we go. Um, but his crew was meant to really show what he thought humanity could be. Um, the original Star Trek was very, very much plot driven. So there weren't a lot of like individual crew arcs, like story arcs for individual characters. We mostly focused on the yeah. three that we'll, we'll, we'll get to here in a bit. But look at just the makeup of the crew. You did have James T. Kirk, who was a Canadian, as the head of everything. Um, you had Leonard Nimoy as Spock, who was an alien and was meant to look alien, not satanic. Just to remind you of the fact that, yes, they are going through space uh, at all yeah. times. You've got, you've got an alien there with them. And then you had Nichelle Nichols as Lieutenant Uhura, who Oof. this, another, like a, re- like a huge first, is that she is the first African-American woman with a legitimately, like, good, like, I don't want to say good role, but a legitimately larger role in a TV series ever. Um, before yeah. her, yep. they're basically extras or side characters. This was a huge, yeah, I mean... And I, I mean, I think anybody who digs into this is going to, who mm-hmm. wasn't alive in the sixties, of course, but, but yeah, this was a huge step forward mm-hmm. um, for people of color in, in popular media. And uh, so, yeah, I, I always remember even as a kid, you know, being told that, yeah, this was, this was a major, um, a major achievement, you know, uh, just in, in, in uh, pop culture. So yeah, always, always awesome to hear that, that sci-fi helped kind of and break down some of these barriers you know <laughs> yeah it did absolutely did and then um Nichols wasn't even the only one because you had um George Takei who was a Japanese American born uh citizen who spent a good deal of his life actually in an internment camp um before he yeah. and he did this as a child um and then he makes his way onto TV as the ship's helmsman and um I don't want to say this is necessarily like a, like a backstep uh, as far as like um, his real vision for the future. But I mean, Gene Roddenberry knew that George Takei was gay um, on the set of this. And Takei had even asked Roddenberry if that was like something they could explore through the show. But um, mm-hmm. 
Roddenberry is actually a little overwhelmed by that. And he was more or less saying that, hey, I'd love to do that, but I've already got um, an African-American woman who just um, kissed a white guy on TV. And I've got um, all these other um, basically storylines about equality and civil rights that if I do one more, who knows what will happen to me. Um, so um, it was kind of like Roddenberry wanting to acknowledge the fact that he did want to have um, um, something with, uh, with gay rights in there, but was almost afraid that that would almost be the straw that breaks the camel's back and that would definitely get the show canceled. Um, but yeah, so we've got, um, we've got George Takei in there. Um, and then we have, uh, uh, Scotty, obviously a Scotsman, um, who is down in the engineering, but is still, um, a big bridge crew member. Uh, McCoy is there, not, not terribly diverse. He's just, you know, kind of pessimistic but fun to go along with my my personal favorite of the series oh i was um, gonna say yeah he he was he was my favorite too <laughs> and and uh deforest kelly is is one of the greatest you know i, I just he's just one of the greatest tv personalities <laughs> oh yeah and I, I, he has also like of the many phrases that do get like kind of like brought into popular culture because of the show Damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a literally anything you want to throw in there <laughs> is one of my favorite things to do. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I'll do that at work with, um, with other things like, damn it, I'm a teacher, not, a, um, not an actual scientist uh, with, uh, with coworkers when almost like they expect me to know science answers. It's like, I know some, but not all. Um, but other than that, uh, you also had, a, you had Chekhov, who seems like it's not too big, but um, he was what? Um, kind of like Jewish Russian descent and more or less shows like these were the people that we were kind of afraid of in the cold war of uh, people of like Eastern European descent and a part of like the, um, the Soviet union. And here he is on the ship as an equal member uh, of humanity going forward. And I, I, I remember hearing this, um, this way of Roddenberry describing the series and it, it's breaking me that I can't remember exactly where it was from, but Roddenberry described um that the enterprise isn't a ship through space. It's actually the planet earth and its crew is all of us. And every time yeah. they encounter an alien species with a problem, those are the problems that we're facing today. And this crew, the future shows us how we can use our knowledge and our humanity to solve the problem as opposed to making into a conflict. And that's, mm -hmm. That's something that always, always stuck with me because he really believed that if people of the Federation could basically negotiate peace with a hostile, potentially hostile alien race, we should be able to at least work with each other. And that, that it should kind of be the heart of Star Trek in general. And that's something that Roddenberry wanted to make sure was done throughout the original series, wanted to be done throughout the movies of the original series and what he brought back uh, to the next generation when he started with that show. Um, so yeah. I would say like with, um, with uh, the original series, were there, any, were there any episodes that really stood out to you um, that you really, really enjoyed because of... I would love to give you like a, an educated <laughs> answer, but really what, what I think mm -hmm. of the most from the original Star Trek series is Captain Pike in the... In his in his like wheelchair apparatus thing, because oh, oh yeah, because you know, mm -hmm. I because I, I found South Park before I found original Star Trek. So mm -hmm. you know, as I was watching uh, South Park, and they would use that joke in a, yep. in an episode at one point. Uh, seeing that is 
is one of the most iconic things from the original <laughs> series. <laughs> I mean, other than mm-hmm. some of the ridiculous uh, action sequences. And oh like, God, yes. You know, just the, the cheesy choreography and oh. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. there, there's, there's some, there's some fun stuff to go back and look oh, at. Oh yeah, there. absolutely. That, that's um, kind of the fun. Um, and this is why you have producers um, from the next generation saying this too: that Star Trek has always been a low-budget show, um, and that was kind of like the fun of the original series too. I mean, one of the first aliens you see is literally like I think like a poodle, like covered <laughs> in something else, and it is blatantly a dog. Like there's no, <laughs> no if ands or buts that that is a dog literally wrapped in like faux fur with a fake like horn on its head <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah um mm-hmm. not to mention like you said the uh the, cho- the choreography of kirk foo um but <laughs> yeah. like, i think my favorite like kirk fighting move which again also always weird that eventually one of the tropes of the show that's supposed to be about negotiation is kirk breaking out into a fight like physically with something yeah. and on top of it looking like william shatner has never really thrown a punch in his life um whenever he chose to basically throw himself sideways at an enemy is <laughs> usually what I kind of like that. Okay. That I've suspended belief long enough. This isn't a real fight. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, the, um, I, I, there is one episode I do remember mm-hmm. um, called the Galileo seven. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was one that this was like the first episode that kind of laid the groundwork for, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember um, that the Enterprise is supposed to deliver like relief supplies to a colony, mm-hmm. um, but seven of the of the crew members end up crash landing on you know on, on a hostile planet, hostile environment. Oh yeah. And so yeah, like Kirk has to basically make the decision between you know who do I help, <laughs> like whose <laughs> mm-hmm. whose life is more important here. And so I do remember that one um, just because of the fact that. Once again, this show was kind of pitched as a pseudo space western to get it across mm-hmm. the line, um, but the Galileo Seven just it, it always hung out to me because or stuck out there to me because of the you know the eventual uh, con uh, storyline and everything. Oh yes, mm-hmm. and which goes on to be uh, arguably probably leads to like the best movie uh, of the franchise uh, with Wrath of Khan. But the movies I think we'll we'll save for a for a side stage. Yeah, um, yeah there's. We don't have enough time for that today, everybody. No, no, no. We're we, sorry. we only have we have enough time for some of the TV, not even all of the TV, but some of the TV. Um, one of the things yeah, that but, really, yeah, oh yeah, one of the I think one of my oh I think one of my favorite standout episodes. Um, um, really to me is the uh, the uh, I think it's the Corbalite maneuver. Yeah. The oh uh, oh you know what here we go knocking stuff loose again yes car, uh, carbamite yes the yep. carbonite carbamite maneuver yes carbamite maneuver where um basically you have another alien race and the enterprise are basically kind of at a stalemate and the enterprise is more or less on its last leg like one more shot and the ship is going down how can we solve this problem and um spock is suggesting surrender we have all these other ideas from the crew and then Kirk gets this idea that we've been playing chess this whole time when we should have been playing poker. Mm-hmm. And the crew is kind of lost on that. So uh, Kirk has them hail the other ship and say that we have uh, the hull is made with uh, Corbomite. And that the next shot that you deal us will reflect right back at you at, like, I think it's like twice the strength, which would almost be guaranteed to like destroy the other ship. Mm-hmm. And so the other ship is put in this area. It's like, well, is he lying or is it the truth? And we're not sure what to do or how to take this. 
Um, so Kirk was obviously bluffing the whole time. Um, and mm-hmm. it was very hard for members like Spock to like candles, like we're, that, that substance isn't real. Um, we can't handle this, but it was kind of a way that showed that they could talk their way out of something and could come to like a peaceful negotiation, even though fighting had already initiated. So, and again, yeah. that, that just that, that line from Kirk, the, we've been playing chess and we should have been playing poker, I think is a, like a standout favorite for a lot um, from the, from the original series. Well, it also helps kind of paint, uh, you know, Bill Shatner's character in a, in a way that he's, I hate to use sports and, and try to cross <laughs> him into this because it doesn't work for everybody, but mm-hmm. like, he's like the Wes Welker of, of like ship captains, right? Like he's, yeah. you know, he's, he's extremely scrappy. You know, mm-hmm. he comes up with just, he comes up with ways to win. Um, you know, we, the Kobayashi Maru, you know, there's no, there, like people always say there's, uh, there are some scenarios that you just can't win, but he's like, Nope, I can yep. win in every scenario. You mm-hmm. just give me, you know, give me the layout and I'll figure a way to, to make it work. And so, you know, from the original series standpoint, that was one of the things that I always took as a, um, just as a, as a really good takeaway from the original series is that, you know, there, if you, if you just put your mind to it, mm-hmm. you can think your way through most issues. And also just to never lose that curiosity of, of, you know, being uh, intertwined with science and, you know, there's this unfortunate thing that happens to a lot of people that you're as a kid, you're constantly asking questions, right? Mm-hmm. You're always asking, how does that work? Why does this happen? You know, why does that behave the way it does? And somewhere in between, you know, folks just kind of gravitate away from continuing to ask those questions. Yeah. And so really do. Yeah. Th- this original series kind of when I, cause I, I started watching it as like a, an early teen, mm-hmm. you know, early young teenager. And so for me, and, and this is just sci-fi in general, not just Star Trek, but like the show really helped do this mm-hmm. was keep asking questions, keeping curious about things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so from that standpoint, you know, Star Trek is, is always going to be great for that kind of stuff. But yeah, but before the original series, you just didn't get this kind of stuff. You no, know? you didn't. And this was um, like one of the things that actually in a, in a column that Roddenberry wrote right before the premiere that went out so people could read something more about the series coming up. He started with science fiction. Absolutely not. Rather a real adventure in tomorrow's space. And he said this was based off of the best scientific knowledge and estimates of what our astronauts may face in the future. So he really wanted the science to be there um, yeah. in this series. It was really, really key to him. Although, honestly, in the original series, the science was kind of pokey. <laughs> they, they, we've got warp drive. They never explain how it works. There's a dilithium crystal that is kind of always breaking. And if you push the engine further, the ship's going to blow up. <laughs> that's, hey, that's all we need to know. That's all we that's, need to know. That's a... is we're giving it all she's got, Captain, um, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, that's all we again, need to know. There was yeah, nothing else we had to know. know. <laughs> but yeah, no, the first series had this really bold interventionist concept, even though um, like we thought uh, Roddenberry wanted us to be able to negotiate everything. The Enterprise did really kind of like slip itself into a lot of situations and decide, um, hey, we're going to break this up. We're going to take care of this. We're going to show you how it's done um, with our great wisdom sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of episodes really end up focusing around Kirk, Spock, and McCoy because those are kind of like the main the main three of there. Um, and it worked really well for the first season. Not so much for the second season. The show was actually canceled after its second season. Um, 
And NBC's like, we don't want to pick it up. It's just, we don't, we, the ratings are lower. Uh, we think we're going to go another direction. And this is where the fans actually wrote in and saved the series and kept it going for one more season um, and yeah. kept things moving. Uh, but then when we got to the third season, uh, they agreed to bring it back. But Roddenberry starts to basically almost take a little bit of a back seat. And he's more, he, he, he doesn't write as much. But you seem just kind of there as an advisor to make sure his overall vision is still kind of intact. And one of the reasons why he stepped back is because is he pretty much knew the season wasn't going to make, the show wasn't going to make it after the season. They had moved yeah. Star Trek from its Monday night slot to Friday night at 10 p.m. No <laughs> one's watching TV at Friday night at 10 p.m. That's a kiss, yeah. Yeah, That's they're a kiss all of death. Even, even, even now, like if you get moved to Friday nights, you're usually a TV show. That doesn't have a whole lot of time left. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the axe is coming down uh, when that happens. When you get moved to Friday, really Friday or Saturday. That's that's the, the those two days where people are usually expected to be like, we're out and about, we're doing things. No one's watching TV um, or mm-hmm. not enough people are watching TV. If your show gets moved there, you're probably on your last leg. I'm um, Thursday or I'm nothing. Yes, Thursday, <laughs> maybe Tuesday, but live for Thursday. <laughs> yeah, but on Tuesday nights, you got to worry about Shia LaBeouf. You do That's have to about Shadow Buff. He's for, out for, there hunting, and you should not be in the woods alone on a Tuesday night. <laughs> for, for, the, for those, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but for those of you that don't know what the hell we're talking about, there's a there's a really funny uh, musical called Shia LaBeouf, the musical by uh, Rob Cantor. That's just absolutely hilarious. Um, mm-hmm. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor. But, Rob Cantor is not a sponsor of this podcast. Um, well, well, tell you what, we've got a show that's been canceled, you mm-hmm. know, twice. Yes. Um, one of the things about Star Trek that you you can find in pretty much most of the mm-hmm. what's called the non-modern series was the idea of being episodic so that mm-hmm. no matter where you jumped in on this crazy you know journey, you could typically find something uh, in that episode where you don't have to necessarily worry about an overarching you know larger narrative or anything. Mm-hmm. You just pop right in. It's it's very similar to the spaghetti western style of storytelling. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and and so I think for for people who liked the original show, it, I think it might have worked for and against them. You know? I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, it made it hard to attach anyone you know, outside of those main three, because again, that, that first show was very much plot driven. Yeah. So it was move the story along in each episode and it didn't matter where you jumped in as long as you could appreciate the episode for what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's something that the next generation which is our our next trip in this series, also did extremely well. Um, Now, Joe, I I know I told you once Mm -hmm. again that I didn't know a whole lot about Star Trek. Um, This is the one, this is the series that I absolutely spent most of my time with. And one of the things about the next generation that I thought was really cool was that we talked about how Roddenberry had characters he just kind of had waiting to use, Mm -hmm. names that he had used for years. The same thing kind of happened out of the the post-original series, you know, movie uh, journey that they went on. Yes. Um, so he ended up making uh, three characters who were supposed to appear in the um, original series movies that they originally uh, created so that they could put them into the films without having to spend a ton of money mm-hmm. thinking, hey, if we can't get the original crew back or pay their ridiculous salaries, because they got all these actors got popular, Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Um so they created these three characters who would actually go on uh, to mirror 
uh, or become characters who would be on the the next generation. So um, I believe it was uh, William Riker. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I knew I was going to refer to there too. Damn it. <laughs> uh, Counselor Troy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, oh, there's one other one. Damn it. Uh, it'll come to me once again. 3, 3 a.m. thoughts. But the long story short, though. Will Worf be the one? Probably not Worf. <laughs> it, it might have been Worf. For some reason, mm -hmm. I'm leaning towards like Jordy, though. I think it it's was Jordy. Probably more Jordy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but either way, that like that's that's one of the things I remembered was that mm -hmm. Roddenberry was kind of thinking, all right, I got these three characters that I just haven't used yet. How can mm -hmm. I repurpose them? And so that's what ended up being the foundations for those three characters. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and even funny thing with Worf is that uh, <laughs> um, Michael Dorn, who plays Worf, appears as a Klingon named Worf and I think Star Trek 4 um like the Star Trek the movie 4 and then shows up in the next generation also as a Klingon named Worf and they are not the same character I mean I'm fine with that I'm fine with that but it's just <laughs> funny like oh that's Worf that's Worf it sounds like the same guy it is the same guy not the same Klingon um <laughs> but yeah, yeah and actually like the start of the next generation um when that was announced, it was kind of weird because it was right around the 20th anniversary of the film. Uh, yeah. Star Trek four was just about to be released and Roddenberry is actually looking forward to retiring. And then he finds out Paramount wants to start a new series. That's after um, Kirk uh, and the crew shenanigans. And he kind of, because of his love for the property and the vision that he wants, he refuses to let go yeah. and more or less ends up being through not so peaceful negotiations being brought back into like having creative control of it because after Star Trek, the motion picture picture completely flopped. And if you watch that movie, it has a small dedicated fan voice fan base that says that that movie's good. I am not in that fan base. That movie was really boring and horrible um, in my opinion. But after that movie, they're like Roddenberry, like you can make sure that like basically we're staying in, in line with your vision but other people are writing this from now on like your other creative staff are coming in um so roddenberry wants to make sure this tv series doesn't go that same that same route he wants more control of it and initially he does get it um so what happens then is he takes his idea of this more peaceful humanity and he like cranks that dial up to 11 with the next generation um so from Kirk's time, suddenly there's no more money because in the original series, Kirk does mention, I think in one episode of uh, these miners on another planet who are mining gold, that they're all going to be rich men. And these are all people who live on earth. Um, money's no longer a thing. Um, yeah. He wants people to um, live in what uh, a movement called humanism, which actually Isaac Asimov wrote to, um, wrote to Roddenberry and gave him a copy of his book on humanism. And that really inspired Roddenberry to take his vision to the next step of having no more money in there. And also one thing that drove the original writers of the next generation crazy was that there was no more conflict among the crew itself. Well, it's odd that you would say that the, the crew doesn't have a lot of conflict amongst them because mm -hmm. Roddenberry absolutely had conflict amongst conflict everyone else on the show <laughs> I mean, he and his lawyer who was meddling constantly through that show massive amounts of conflict well they, they fired uh, i think he fired like 30 writers in the first season alone yes um, there's actually also a joke i think in 
um, one of the bathrooms uh, near the set of The Next Generation, um, they actually wrote the name of every writer who had been fired from The Next Generation. And I think it was like, yeah. it was close to like 45, 50 writers at the end of season two. So it was a lot of people got fired for writing that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's, there was a writer that Roddenberry brought in um, who literally showed up for one day, mm-hmm. wrote one episode. Roddenberry reads it and fires him. Yeah. And it on the spot. Also, uh, that story is sadly hilarious too, because that writer was a really big fan of the show of the original Star Trek and he was super excited to work on it. And he he turns in his yeah. script and Roddenberry comes the next day and basically says that he's sorry um that they have to part ways so soon and that um the show couldn't move forward with the both of them. And the writer thought Roddenberry was retiring. So yeah. he was like, oh no, this sucks. Gene's going away. He, I think he leaves for lunch, comes back, and all of his furniture is moved out of his office. And that's how he figured out that he was fired. Yeah, I, honestly, um, it's, it's amazing that that mm-hmm. first season ever even was able to survive. And Oh, the first three seasons, really? <laughs> well, but it, the, the whole reason why that first season survived was because of syndication. Yeah, I mean that's it was also unique in the fact that like compared to the original show like it wasn't a network TV show it was syndicated from the start. So it was just pitched to like network after network and they just picked it up if they wanted it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean well that's but that's that's pretty much how it kept going because I mean if you read some of the reviews on season 1 mm-hmm. of Next Gen there there are people that that talk about how it it felt it felt kind of hard to get through. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I didn't so much um, look at it through that lens. I actually really enjoyed uh, season one of, of the next generation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we we talked about the naked now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, in the robot sex episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we talked about people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Tashiar banging uh, Data, who's, who's fully functional, as we would find out. Mm-hmm. Um, which honestly, that episode, even though we joked about it and, and poked fun, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, they do actually call back to the original series they do, in that episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they, they specifically reference uh, the original crew and what they dealt with and how they overcame a very similar situation. So I always thought that was kind of cool that they, you know, they took the time to yeah. um, at least explore some of those previous uh, mm-hmm. storylines. But yeah, yeah, um, that was that was big in part thanks to like, again, Roddenberry making sure that he he really had his creative control over the next generation for the first few years or the first few seasons. Um, And when we look then at like really comparing the things that make the next gen great. So, uh, or make Star Trek great. One thing we'd mentioned that made the original series great was like the diverse cast of characters who would come together to solve problems. When we look at the, the cast of the main, basically the main crew um, it's kind of diverse it's not like it's kind of not like your your classic '90s show where you do have like very like what almost feels like forced representation. Like not in that like I don't want to say forced representation. Meaning it comes off cheesy more than helpful in a lot of '90s things like Captain Planet, um, the original Power Rangers. Um, <laughs> like they were cheesy. They meant well, but they were cheesy. Um, yeah, but you can you can say did. that they you can say they created token characters. Oh, I mean that's did. fine. You can mm-hmm. say that. I, they I we're, did. We're, we're beyond the point where we have to be careful about the nineties being <laughs> low key racist with almost yeah. everything we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's the truth, you know, and, mm-hmm. and as you talk about the cast of, of the next generation, what they did a good job of was obviously having 
you know, they had representation within the cast, but mm -hmm. they did a really good job of showing how, you know, the enterprise, even though it's a ship, there's, there's, you know, thousands of people on it yeah. and, and, and they do a good job with, at least in the first few seasons of mm -hmm. kind of spreading the love around. You, you meet a lot of different characters. You see a lot of different people mixed in amongst the main cast. Mm -hmm. um, so you have a chance to understand that the enterprise is a living, breathing organism all on its own. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I thought that was, yeah, something mm -hmm. great they did with that. Oh, completely. And that's like, um, they really hammer that through, um, in the first episode where you've got Riker trying to find data and he just gets transferred to the ship and he meets um, a crewman who laughingly says, Oh, this must be your first time in a galaxy class vessel uh, as he's walking around trying to find someone. Because <laughs> we look at the original crew of the enterprise and in the, the whole crew, I think was like 170 people. It was basically meant this is just to run the ship. And these are the people we need to just run the ship. And then we get to this galaxy class enterprise um, D and there are, I think four or 500 people on that ship. Most of them are citizens. Like they're literally there just kind of like the enterprise is a tour bus going through space. So again, it really drives home that whole, like this is the planet earth and the crew is us. It is humanity. So we not only get um, interactions with the crew running the ship, but we get interactions with just people who are on the ship who don't necessarily have a role um, going but around and doing things. But looking at the main, yeah. the main bridge cast is where the, it really does shine. Because um, much like Star Trek, actually, the original series, it, it does backwards in the next gen. It starts very plot driven. And again, like the, uh, the writers are driven crazy by this because like Gene explicitly said, no one will fight amongst themselves on the crew in the first one in like the first like two seasons. Um, and then <laughs> that changes. In the, yeah, it just didn't work. Uh, it did not work at all. Well, specifically, I'm thinking of uh, the episode Datalore, where oh, yeah. we uh, or Datalore <laughs> rather, where we find out about you know Data's uh, you know quote unquote brother that that they mm -hmm. they found on the same planet that they found Data on, and and that's that's just all about internal conflict and oh, and 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 that's where a lot of people who have seen uh, mm -hmm. Star Trek memes is where Picard says, "Shut up, Wesley," you know. <laughs> Conflict right there with Wesley just being on the bridge. <laughs> yeah, right <yeah>. there. <laughs> well, and, and and so obviously we mm -hmm. we've kind of glossed over Patrick Stewart, you know, being the heart of this series. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. But so, yeah, yeah, he he just he treats Wesley like a whipping post. It, <laughs> and if it's it is so odd though, right? Oh, like, it, it is. is so weird mm -hmm. because he's he's so compassionate and he's so mm -hmm. understanding. I mean, he treats Data like a real person. Uh, he even kind of imposes that on other people too like hey yeah you're you're not human in the sense that we call each other humans mm -hmm. but that doesn't make you any less of one absolutely and, um, yeah and, and it's so it's so weird that he's just like he's just beating yeah. on wesley every mm -hmm. every time he gets a chance <laughs> but which yeah. is also weird considering i think i mean the active joke is that he is trying to sleep with beverly crusher throughout most of the series like they have this weird mm -hmm. like they definitely have like sexual tension amongst each other and he's at first just a complete dick to Wesley. <laughs> just doesn't like, no, nope, get this fucking kid off my bridge. Um, Which further makes no sense because you you come to find out that the decisions of Picard in the past actually mm -hmm. led to the death of, you know, of uh, the, uh, what's this? I can't remember the crusher's, uh, mm -hmm. the dad's name, but he, he's the reason why she's a widow. 
and yeah. that Wesley's dad is not around is because <laughs> you, you find out there's, I'm not going to blow it for anybody, but mm-hmm. Picard's responsible for the death of, of the, uh, the crusher household. Yes. It is <laughs> his fault. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just odd. Time that, like, the Stargazer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just odd that he's, he's coming after the widow and now he's like totally bashing the son all the time. It, it was, it was just, it was, uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to sidetrack this too much, but that's, sidetrack this but that's, <laughs> that's side tracks sir is what you meant to say not yeah, tracked <laughs> yeah this is this is one thing that i just could not get over watching the original or the next generation is like man picard's a dick a little bit yeah mm-hmm. at least early so, on yeah yeah which is also great because like you see like the compassion he has for literally every other crew member on that ship um and yeah. especially data and one of my one of my favorite episodes this measure of a man where data is basically being deemed property by the federation and he's gonna be brought back for further study and picard fights tooth and nail that data is more than just a machine and he's a vital member of the crew and they go out to prove basically uh basically these three laws of robotics not not the ones that asimov has but basically the three laws of what would make you sentient and i think data met like two like pretty much right away and there was the argument over the third for the most part um and again, like the fact that he will fight so hard uh, for the humanity of that character. And what is great is that as the show goes on and um, unfortunately due to like Roddenberry's health issues is when he basically releases control um, to um, uh, Rick Berman uh, for the show. And mm-hmm. this is where the show really starts to open up more and really finds its rhythm because this is when they say, nope, we're going to have story arcs where this is a Picard episode. This is a Troy episode. This is a Worf episode. This is a Geordi episode. This is yeah. Data's two episodes. And this is where we now take something that makes Star Trek great, which was just that envisionment of the future. And we add something more to it. And that is you can really get to see the individual lives of the crew so that you're not just focused on one or two members of it. And this is one of the things that really made me love Star Trek going up is that you saw like not only does the crew look diverse, but you get so much more of their personalities and their struggles. And that makes it more believable. This is humanity in space working through things. So that is something that I I really loved growing up is like you get a data episode who's constantly like trying to figure out what it means to be human. You get Mm -hmm. Worf who's split between two worlds of trying to be a traditional Klingon and having honor and doing all the things that Klingons want to do, but also being a Federation officer and the pride that he has in that. So he's torn between the two things. Yeah, um, and he's got a hell of a sneeze too. Hell of a sneeze. Um, <laughs> probably right, just... two sneezes. He has two spines and he <laughs> is twice as fully functional as anyone else in that crewmate, which is also a meme. Oh yeah. Wrap it through the internet. Um, yeah, people love the the, the dual organs. <laughs> we, we will get a ton into. So I'll, I'll actually get us that, back. No. I'll, I'll I'll remove my own uh, bullshit there and get us back on track. But the, you're you're talking about uh, data though, and the mm-hmm. idea of humanity. I mean, the show itself got very cerebral after a point. Yeah, and um, and one of the examples of that that I kind of earmarked, and mm-hmm. I mean, I earmarked it long before we even put it as a topic was, you know, season six really did did a lot of good with with storytelling and 
in particular, I'm, I'm going to dive right into a, a, mm-hmm. a very specific episode. If you remember the, the chain of command. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that, that episode was, was really fun um, because of the fact that, you know, the, they kind of just pull Picard from, uh, from his, his post, mm-hmm. you know, on the enterprise and they, they replace him with, with captain Jellico. Once again, that name was going to come yep. back. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but the, the episode gets into this, uh, you know, this political intrigue and, you know, war games and, mm-hmm. and then prisoners of war and, and torture and things like that. And so mm-hmm. um, this episode was so well done that I don't want to give it away, even though, I mean, spoiler alert, right? We, we always usually always say that, but here I don't want to give it away. <laughs> no, it's too good. Um, yeah, I, I just mm-hmm. want to point out that that the the themes of that episode, you know, would have been fine, would have been great for mm-hmm. you know even a, a full length feature film to explore. Um, but they do it extremely well, and uh, and it's a two part episode. Two part uh, two parters mm-hmm. are kind of common in the Star Trek universe. Oh but... yes, especially when you go to the mirror universe and it's just everyone wearing goatees. which is why i shaved my facial hair off because i just couldn't i I hate feeling evil all the time (laughs) um but but to stay with season six though Mm -hmm. uh going back to the idea of you know what what is really humanity Mm -hmm. um was the ship in a bottle episode where uh on the holodeck uh you find out that there is this this uh, computer program of Mm -hmm. james moriarty from sherlock holmes and he becomes self-aware and and then there's this this discussion about well what what really is this program mm-hmm. you know like what what is what does this mean for mm-hmm. for humanity if this program can can go beyond the confines of being code you know and and th- these are questions that are being asked in the early 90s yeah you know and again it's it's also great because it, it really does explore like with our ability to create new technology, what responsibility do we have for what that technology is capable of? Yeah. Um, and that's what it explores there and explores that with data. And I'd also like to point out that when, when Roddenberry did say that uh, the original series was supposed to be scientific and best knowledge, it was kind of just goofy. The next generation is where like it actually did that very well. They went into explaining the science behind phasers and the shields and the deflectors. And while Waddenberry did kind of have his own, his own answers to those things, it actually told you how it worked. And this is also where you get the idea of how warp actually works and how this is fun because of all like the, the fashion like space travel, Star Trek's warp fields are actually the most plausible out of any of them. Uh, and it's basically... Um, that fun line from uh, from the Abrams movie where Scotty says, I never thought to think of it as space as the thing that's moving. Yeah. And that's that's basically how it's supposed to be working is you get this warp field um, around the ship and then you are taking matter and antimatter. And eventually I think they have a negative matter together, which negative matter is something that we have no, that's where the whole, really the whole thing falls apart is with negative matter. Um, but Basically, they start just building up and amassing an area that literally starts warping space around the field of the warp field. Mm-hmm. And it kind of compresses it in front of the ship and makes it expand behind the ship. So it works like a wave pushing a surfboard. And again, it's space is what's moving. And because we can like we can like observe space moving faster than light, it's a work away around uh relativity it says nothing can go faster than the speed of light except space itself which is as we know is capable of actually space-time can bend we have seen Mm -hmm. it uh the edges of the universe are moving faster than the speed of light 
So we know that space can move faster than the speed of light. So this is one of the first times where they really made an attempt to explain the science behind how the ships work and something that other properties sometimes intentionally just don't bother trying to do. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, They just say, nope, it's faster than light travel. Um, So that's just, that's just how it works. And they're like, basically fashion light travel is just a plot point for the series, but Star Trek did its best to explain how it actually worked, which is really, really cool. Another thing that I really liked in it. So Again, like things that made this series great. Again, you had that same, um, that same science. We had the science focus is new, um, but that same uh, diversity solving problems. You had that uh, new the crew actually being a really big part of it, and that was really big. So those are all things that really drew me in. And with with the season six thing with with Jellico, uh, I actually know that this was a personal favorite episode for Deanna Troy. Um, uh, played by Marina Sirtis because <laughs> this is where she finally got to stop wearing the velvet skin tight suits oh, because know. Jellico said, you have to wear a crew uniform. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then from that episode forward, she's always in the crew uniform even after Picard comes back. Yeah. So Marina Sirtis was actually very happy with that. Um, and another thing yeah. with Deanna Troy, I thought what worked really great is the fact of you had a counselor as a key member of the ship so it really showed like how much mental health was really like encouraged in the 24th century um, and having that taken care of. And also her struggles with her traditional races um, view of how women should behave and how she didn't want to do that anymore um, was yeah. also just a really great, like another dimension that the show added. Which is funny. You'd mentioned that too, because, you know, very pretty early on in the series too, we, we visit a planet where, they've essentially swapped uh, gender roles. Yeah. Like traditional gender roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was a really interesting choice. Um, you know, that, that early in the series where mm-hmm. uh, you just see how this, this uh, you basically see how this whole society lives and operates. Yeah. Um, but once again, kind of hard hitting from a plot standpoint is that you come to find out that they realize that you, mm-hmm. you can't stop the flow of, of humanity kind of going certain yeah. ways, mm-hmm. which is a larger uh, theme that I think kind of calls back to um, how Roddenberry wanted to, you know, talk about gay rights in the original mm-hmm. series, you know, in this episode, um, even though it's a, you know, it's a, it's a female run society with, mm-hmm. with men kind of being subservient, whatever. I thought it was really important for them to point out that you can't stop, you know, the behaviors of humans because yeah. it does, it doesn't just talk about the, you know, the, the process between men and women, it, mm-hmm. it, it just talks about how there are things that humanity is going to do and you can't prevent it from happening. And it kind of just kind of, it, it, it goes right into that whole acceptance conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was once again, early nineties, they're, they're hitting some pretty high marks here. Yeah, <laughs> they absolutely are. And when you look at the overall success of the next generation, initially there was a lot of blowback from the fans. They did not want to see, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy replaced by new people. So there was a lot of initial hatred for it. And Mm -hmm. to my knowledge, this show was only ever canceled once. And that was at the end of its seventh season. And that was more or less, I think the writers kind of just felt like the show had run its course. And it was was time to end it there. Kind of like how Seinfeld went out on a high note. Like Jerry's like, nope, I think we're just done after nine um, sort of thing. Uh, And I think to this day still has the the highest average ratings of any Star Trek shows in the next generation, even it's two spinoffs with uh, DS nine and Voyager 
which is basically Star Trek's attempt at having a bar in space and doing Lost in space, respectively. <laughs> both both fun series in their own right for the fans who like them. I'm just a bigger next gen person. Um, uh, I mean, shout out to Sailor. I loved I loved Janeway's attempts at diplomacy sometimes, though, which is more mm-hmm. or less depending on her levels of coffee she had in her system and how happy she was based off of it. It was pretty yeah. great. Um, and those are those are ones that I didn't spend mm-hmm. really any time with. And, and when Joe and I were first talking about this uh, this idea, I went, "Wasn't Deep Space Nine just like Cheers, <laughs> but set in space?" You know, I mean, there <laughs> a lot of the sh- a lot of the episodes of the good episodes were basically Quark and his shenanigans. It was more and Odo kind of be like Quark, how dare you, sort of do this? And then you did have um, uh, Colin Meanly, um, uh, O'Brien, Chief O'Brien who yeah. started on the next gen, but then transitioned on to DS9, which Michael Dorn would eventually do it too. Um, but you had um, his character becomes friends with basically a, an, an enhanced human doctor, uh, Bashir, who have like this like very big bromance on the show and they're constantly hanging out as much as possible. And it's kind of funny that those two actors like in real life did not like each other. They didn't get along. Um, <laughs> What was a thing not quite as bad as like the original series where like basically Shatner was very full of himself and even though he did make lifelong friends with uh, with Leonard Nimoy a lot of the crew um, not big fans of him it's actually why I think uh, George Takei uh, was on his own ship in the later movies because he just could not stand being around Shatner for too long and James Duhan uh, Duhan uh, who played Scotty was a uh, famously quoted for saying that he was a big fan of James T. Kirk, not so much Bill. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is that it's, it's such a, uh, it's such well-known history about Star Trek. Uh, if you're, if you're attached to it, mm-hmm. but if you, if you're just coming into it for the first time, uh, he, he obviously had quite a few issues uh, because at one point Shatner thought that, um, that his his problem solving ability was being trumped by Leonard Nimoy's character mm-hmm. Spock. You know that Spock was yeah. was way was way too smart, and that mm-hmm. you know he he felt that uh, he, that 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 Kirk should have gotten more problem solving <laughs> capabilities. And like, mm-hmm. and 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 this would continue. Like, you know, not, not to throw Shatner in the bus because he's already no. under there. But he <laughs> <laughs> after the events of. Uh, the movie Generations, where mm-hmm. you know, through some interesting storytelling, we actually bridged the gap of that 80 years between the original mm-hmm. series and Next Generation. He hated the outcome of that so much um, <laughs> that he would end up writing his own mm-hmm. book series, you know, called the Shatnerverse, yeah, where, where his character doesn't die. And mm-hmm. and <laughs> if you get them on audiobook, uh, Bill Shatner himself is the one doing the audiobook. So you can really immense yourself into the Shatnerverse uh, if you if you audible those. Also, yeah. audible, not a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, not, um, not yet. We always not say yet. yet. We'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. Um, and if, if you want like a, a fun take on all that, the, the Shatner things, watch Galaxy Quest. Um, amazing oh, movie. Yeah. They Very per- well casted. They, yeah. Not yeah. so much a spoof of Star Trek, so much as a spoof of behind the scenes star trek um yeah. and does a wonderful job of doing it but that that could be another episode is just galaxy quest in itself um so and i hate to do this um to skip forward more um because we're going we, we've we've gone on for a while here what makes the first two series great 
And yeah. there are a lot of great things of DS9, a lot of great things of Voyager. Um, and even like the shortest series so far, uh, Enterprise, which I really liked, but I also get why people didn't. Um, a lot of good things that happened there, but we're going to kind of lump them into the next generation. Um, what made those shows great? Because a lot of things that Next Gen did really well was carried on to those shows too, where we got, um, it's still, they're still fairly episodic, um, but you will get these character arcs that stretch through. So you can really focus on the crew and how humanity is negotiating itself um, through the 24th century and then an enterprise. Um, I think it was, I think 20 years before the enterprise went out. Um, before Kirk's Enterprise went out. I'm, I'm loose mm -hmm. on that, the time frame exactly when it goes out. But 10 years before the Enterprise went out, uh, where Kirk joined it, is where the most recent um, modern series of Star Trek Discovery takes place, uh, or at least where it starts. And this is, again, where we see that divide where we have fans saying that, no, my old Trek was better, this new Trek is junk, and we don't like it. Yeah, and why, why do people hate this? Because once again, I this is this is kind of where I'll I'll have to, you know, jump off the train because mm -hmm. I have not spent any time with quote unquote new Trek here, mm -hmm. but I have heard a lot of fans do not like yeah. it. So what what's mm -hmm. the basis for that? Yeah, and Grand like I was not around. Like again, I was I was born I think a year before Next Gen premiered, so I don't remember. Obviously, don't remember the hate for the Next Generation. I came we came along when Next Generation was well loved and well received. So it was interesting to really see the hatred for this one as a new Star Trek coming out. And of course, I mean, there were squabbles with DS9, Enterprise and Voyager as well. But this was really bad. Like it was a huge divide of people either really liking Discovery or really hating Discovery. And I remember being on the fence um, when this first started out. I'm now off the fence, but I was on it for a while there. And things that this did first um it was the first series where basically the central focus wasn't on the captain of the ship while um the original series it was obviously centered around kirk and then spock and mccoy were there uh the next generation picard was definitely the heart of the show but the show spent so much time with the rest of the seat with the rest of the cast um but picard still at the center and the same thing with um DS9 with Cisco, Voyager with Janeway, and Enterprise with Archer. But now we have Michael Burnham, who's actually the first, basically the first mate. She's the Riker of the show without actually being Riker. She doesn't sleep around with everything um, like Riker did, which is probably for the best. Um, <laughs> so who has the time? That, who know, has the time? Who has know? the time? No one does. It's a big, it's a big galaxy. You can't do that. Um, so we, we have a focus on Michael Burnham, and that's really where um i think the show a lot of people are hurt by it is that there is so much focus on michael burnham and that it almost feels for the most part that the rest of the cast is useless and that was kind of where i that that's also like the uh, the answer i arrived at i i stuck with it for the first three seasons uh, mm -hmm. and i just canceled um cbs all access before it turned to paramount plus i was like after the third season i'm like yeah it looks like it's getting better, but I'm kind of done with it. Um, so basically you have like kind of a central cast that it tries to focus on with uh, Burnham, uh, then Saru, who's a Keltian, who admittedly from the previews, I thought was going to be really stupid because it was his whole species was 
made to um, sense the presence of death. I'm like, how do you sense death is coming? Like, this is a lame spider sense. Like, what's going on with that? But whatever. Saru um, actually turns out his, his species was oppressed by another species. And um, he actually gets a really fun story arc in the second season. But it's Saru. Uh, then you have Tilly um, and Paul uh, Stamets are the, basically the focus. There are other characters on the bridge. I can't tell you their names because, honestly, there's not a lot of time spent on them in those first three seasons. So like I they're not memorable and that's what sucks is because there could be fun things about them but going from episode to episode what you usually take away Paul Stemitz who is also I think one of the like the first openly gay Star Trek characters on a series uh, who is the head engineer total douchebag the first two seasons and I hate him hated him I just com- was completely turned off by his character those first two seasons because he was so cold and unforgiving and basically placed everyone beneath him. Isn't he um, the same guy that played the douchebag from road trip that tries to steal the main character's girlfriend away? That's, <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the same guy. I think it's it the exact be. same guy. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he's being typecast, you know, maybe it could be mm-hmm. Ser- seriously. I'm going to have to look at yep. that. I'm pretty bit. sure it's the same actor. It's gotta be. Yeah. Look, I looked that up. Um, and the character does loosen, like he does lighten up a bit in the third season. Um, you have Tilly, who's very scattered, but trying to move her career forward. And for every like step forward, I think those characters take, I feel like Burnham puts them a step back. Because again, they will be this, this major story problem. And ultimately, Burnham solves the problem. Or ultimately, she is the one who like the thing needs to focus on. That's what happened at the end of the first season. That's what happened at the end of the second season. And even at the start of the first of the third season, I thought, hey, here's a chance where something could change because Burnham is separated uh, from the rest of the crew and they're stuck on this planet with this parasitic ice, which whatever um, uh, is basically trying to swallow the ship and the crew has to like negotiate and do a few things before they can get off the planet. Um, they, they finally do that. It looks like they're going to get out of the nick of time and, this, and the ship is just, is just struggling to come off of the planet. And you're like, you're fighting like, oh my God, are they going to do it? Are they going to get stuck there? And suddenly this other ship comes in like, hey, maybe their new friends who they saved through like their reasoning are going to help them out. And the ship comes in, puts a tractor beam, pulls Discovery out. Nope, it was Michael Burnham had found them out of nowhere, find, found them, tracked them down and she saved them. So even again, like it just sucked because she robs them of character. De- the writing, her writing robs them of character development. And it, it, it just blows, in my opinion. That's that's a shame because when you look at the, the next generation, just as an mm-hmm. example, I mean, you've got different members of that crew stepping up and mm-hmm. solving problems that save everybody else's ass. Yep. I mean, I mean, hell, even Wesley Crusher does it multiple yeah. times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see other characters from that bridge step in. Like, like there's an episode where, you know, Picard falls ill mm-hmm. and, and then uh, just due to the, the other folks on the ground mission, like he, LaForge has to step up and mm-hmm. be the captain of the enterprise, you know, like, yeah. like that, that kind of stuff is cool because it does give a character something else to do other than just mm-hmm. one responsibility. Exactly. And then there were, I mean, discovery fans could argue like there are times where like discovery is, I mean, it one, it Burnham's not the captain of the ship. So therefore like, she's not always the captain. Other people are doing things, but the problem is, is she is constantly the one stepping up. She is always the one solving the problem. And that's what kind of stinks. 
So it doesn't even matter that she's not the captain. Oh, I mean, story, uh, I guess, spoiler alert, if you're discovery, if you, if you're just starting discovery at the end of the third season, she becomes the captain of the ship, um, which she well, might I mean, as well have been the whole time anyway. <laughs> well, if you're um, saving the day every day, I would yeah, think you well get, get paid for the job you've been doing. Yeah. You should um, earn that promotion by that point. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and when we look at the other things, like, so we said like right there, that's where it kind of falls short and what made the next generation great and the, the next generation, like, uh, spinoffs. And another part where I think that really it falls short has to do with um, the way they approach solving problems. Like we said, like the past two series, there's always like a negotiation between um, our enterprise crew and who, and the aliens they're dealing with. And it was never the enterprise's crew taking the high ground for the sake of taking the high ground. It was never we're right, you're wrong, and we're going to show you why you're wrong. It was always, we think we're right, you think we're right, how can we work this out? In Discovery, the crew of the Discovery is always right, and everyone else is always wrong, and they will tell you that to your face and be unapologetic about it. They just don't care. Um, you see them actually do this um, in the second season when Christopher Pike comes on and the Enterprise shows up for a small bit of it. And there's a part where Pike, who has more experience as a, as, a, as a crewman or a Starfleet officer than anyone on the Discovery, but he doesn't have that experience on the Discovery like other crews do. So he comes in and he tries like solving something the same way he usually does. And they just flat out tell him he's wrong. And he needs to figure out how things work around here. And this is also how they deal with aliens and any other thing. And I get that this is before Kirk and this is before... Um, the next gen really put emphasis on like the prime directive. Yeah, um, yeah. But like you're setting, you're setting the mentality backwards. I get like it takes place before that, but the mentality of still of negotiating and working things out as opposed to just telling the other species that they're wrong, they need to get in line is something that just usually is not Star Trek. And I can see that that's also where yeah. um, things fall off here. Because even in the original series, that was always the spirit of what was going on. I mean, because mm -hmm. even if this takes place technically before that by a little bit, yeah. I mean, I would think they didn't just come to the realization that we should treat aliens as we want to be treated no. or, or mm -hmm. treat aliens the way they want to be treated, right? Yeah. The, the quote-unquote platinum rule. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it does seem kind of odd. And once again, I haven't watched the the new stuff here, so I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm taking your word for this, Joe, and trusting you. Um, <laughs> but... Mm -hmm. But that, that, that seems really odd to me. It really does. It because, does. Because then it takes mm -hmm. away that interest in, in showing how, mm -hmm. you know, humanity isn't unique to humans, right? Yeah. Like, like it's, it's, it's something that the entire galaxy kind of mm -hmm. recognizes and understands, unless you're a Cardassian. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's kind of sad to hear that, you know, that, I mean, I, and I understand that, mm -hmm. that properties want to update, they want to... Yeah you know, maybe take on uh, more of the issues of the mm -hmm. modern day. And that's fine. People yeah. want to interpret what they want to do. You want to write mm -hmm. your show the way you want. Fine, whatever. But this this seems definitely against the spirit of the last 50 years of media. Yeah, and exactly. And I think that's where a lot of a lot of like the larger earlier Trek fans, they really get that divide. Um, and even me, initially I was torn. One of the things that tore me is that like, when it comes to like this show, like it is visually gorgeous. Like the amount of money they're pouring into the sets, into the CGI and 
Um, the uniforms, everything. Like they're doing a spectacular job on that. And I even want to say like the actors and actresses, like they're doing a good job. Like I don't, they're doing a good job selling their characters. It just sucks that I don't like the characters that they're selling. And I think that's what hurts it. And that's where I think also the problem lies is with um, when it comes to the writing and we have now the creative head of this is, uh, is uh, I think, uh, Kurtzman. Uh, and Kurtzman yeah. has worked with like J.J. Abrams on the 2009 reboot movie series. He's worked with Abrams on lots of other properties. And in an interview that Kurtzman had, he talked about, remember watching the old Star Trek and saying that it wasn't memorable to him is because it was boring. And he just remembered like, okay, there are a lot of furry things here. There's a green lady over there, but that's all I'm taking away from this. So this is a, this is a writer who doesn't share the same like vision of how things got solved from Roddenberry uh, and from Berman for as much flack as Trek fans like to give Berman and Braga. Um, mm. they, they at least had the idea that what they were trying to do was still upholding what Gene Roddenberry wanted. And uh, Berman actually also famously said that uh, in his office, he had a bust of Gene Roddenberry. And whenever a script would go in a way that he didn't think Gene Roddenberry would want, um, he would put a blindfold over the, of, of the bust and then they would keep talking about it. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of fun. But for as much flack as they got, like they tried keeping this original idea of it alive. And now we have creative control to someone who wants, wants more of like the Star Wars style of science fiction with, with lots of flash and panache and plot-driven story as opposed to character-driven story. Um, I also have to say the science fiction's lame. Um, the the instantaneous spore drive, stupidest thing ever. Whoa, 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 whoa. Spore drive? Yeah. So basically, um, like I said, how like warp is a nice feasible way or like a mostly like kind of fun feasible way where you actually have scientists who are working towards the plausibility of it. Um, the spore drive is based off of a biological thing where um, basically um, you have mycelium, which are built up of hyphae and fungus. And they more or less form these super high rays along like tree roots and in, in, uh, in, um, in the ground. And they're super high rays for bacteria because bacteria need moisture to be able to travel well. So they struggle when moving through the dirt and through areas where there's no water. But then they hit these damp um, mycelium uh, networks and they could basically like travel at insane bacteria speeds along the, the network of mycelium. It's also where they go to, to reproduce quite a bit. So it's like this weird, um, fast um, transport uh, online dating service for bacteria. But anyway, they can move across it really fast. Um, so basically the show takes the idea, like, why don't we take that and turn it into a new way of transporting the ships? So the discovery initially, um, is using more or less um, a giant tardigrade. Again, also bad sci-fi that tardigrades could travel through vacuums really fast for some reason. Um, was well, basically, it's they are they are adorable though. Adorable and nigh indestructible. Yeah, pretty great. But basically, the idea is that this tardigrade's DNA acted as kind of like a GPS for this mycelial network. And that when it turned on, you could instantaneously jump from where you currently are to somewhere else along this giant invisible space fungus network. And that's how the ship can travel instantaneously. 
honestly, I, I think you've told me all I need to know about yeah. discovery yep. at this point. So to, I guess like to try and like bring things to a wrap here, we're looking at what makes a Trek series great and what divides um, the fan base among things is you have to have a vision of how humanity advances in the future and how we work together to solve our problems. You have to have a crew that you can really attach to. And I would say all three generations do that. However, you're dealing with people who are from three different generations. So when you go from generation to generation, you're going to have people who don't like the way the new story is being told. So 20 years after the original series comes in, you've got this new cast who handles things differently and does things differently. And you're replacing original characters. You get people upset. And then um, what from 86, that's 30 years ago. <laughs> it's like yeah. ugh, 30 years ago since the next generation um, premiered. You have a new cast, a new way of telling a story that's trying to do the same thing, but in a new storytelling manner that has fans like, like me in my business, uh, in, my, in my age group, not enjoying it as much uh, because it's, yeah. telling the, it's trying to tell something similar, but in a different way. And it just doesn't work for my generation as it did, as my generation's storytelling didn't work for the others. So as far as what makes one Trek good or bad or the other, I think it's kind of on the fans. It could be. I mean, keep in mind, I'm one of those people that that I don't consider myself a Trekkie. Based mm -hmm. on the amount of times I've stumbled over my words in just this episode, you can probably mm -hmm. tell that I don't know nearly as much as Joe does here. Um, but what I have done is been exposed to the original series, um, the, the movies here, um, obviously Next Generation that we talked about, and and some of the extended properties. So you know, I, I, I definitely think there's a lot of good things that you can draw from in this series, you know, from the original two generations. Um, yeah, I'm not going to tell people not to watch, you know, Discovery or... No, I wouldn't you know. do that either. No, I wouldn't <laughs> but, do it either. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, just based off of the stuff that I've experienced from mm -hmm. the original properties, I, I would even just tell people there's no harm in starting there. No, Seriously. not at all. <laughs> no, I wouldn't at all. Like, I would... I'd say the same thing. And, and also hate to hate to make things harder for you, but even by you saying you're not a Trekkie by any means, um, there's even a division between people who call themselves Trekkies. And before that there were the Trekkers and that's a whole thing all in itself. And definitely there's not enough time in this episode since we've, we've taken a good deal of your day already. But <laughs> um, my advice is that like, if you haven't tried Star Trek yet, um, and maybe you are looking for something different. If you are a Star Wars fan, if you're more fan of like the, the, the space opera or the space drama in space, um, and you're looking for something a little different, give Star Trek a go. If you were afraid you so in the past, and as far as where you want to start, I don't know, pick a series and go for it. I think there's enough similarities and differences among all of the series where you will find a series you can attach to here. There's enough over, over the 55-year span of this, of this franchise where if you want to start with Discovery, go with Discovery. Like, again, like I was brought in by um, the visuals alone uh, had me going. Um, so while I may have decided to, to be done with the series, like that's no reason for anyone not to start. I, I know plenty of people absolutely love it and they keep going with it. Um, so, yeah, um, I have to say it's... Uh, probably time for us to uh, 
leave the final frontier here. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with pursuing another five-year mission elsewhere. thanks everyone for joining this week's conversation about the final frontier if you enjoyed this chat why not mention this show to people who may enjoy it as well you can find us where you find your favorite podcasts but we're also on youtube facebook and twitter by searching for the digital dissection podcast or at digital dissect one while you're there why not comment subscribe and leave a review this will help our show keep our lights on for at least a few more days next week we become vengeance we become the night we become Batman in video games. Join us as we talk about how the Dark Knight's journey has evolved from an 8-bit PC side-scroller to an Unreal Engine-driven open-world adventure. And until next time, keep on dissecting.